Hey there, welcome to the podcast. My name's Tim Richardson and I'm your host. On today's episode, I sit down with Lucy Huron uh, and it's a bit of a mixed bag. We talk about Ralph Lauren, her time in practicology, building teams and what the Casper IPO means for digital retail right now. Before we get into it, how are the leading DTC brands growing their business? Well, they're using Klaviyo, the growth marketing platform chosen by over 25,000 global innovative online brands. Klaviyo believes in supporting growth, which is why they won't tie you into lengthy contracts, hidden setup or support fees, or feature-based pricing. With a platform that is both powerful and easy to use, it's no wonder so many brands have switched to Klaviyo. Looking for one more compelling reason? Brands switching to Klaviyo see an average of 62 times return on their investment. Don't take my word for it. Go and check them out. Visit klaviyo.com slash your basket is empty. That's K-L-A-V-I-Y-O dot com slash your basket is empty. Enjoy the episode. Lucy, welcome to the podcast. How are you? I'm great, Tim. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Um, what are we? Wednesday afternoon. Uh, we had a big event last week. And the team are still catching up from that. And so am I. Must have been a good event. It was really cool. So we hired out a a shop in Soho. Um, So we did it with a bunch of partners ours and um, with Skinny Dip, the brand. And it was like a, it was immersive pop-up experience. So yeah. I know them, fun brand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was really good. Um, And a whole bunch of punters came along. A lot of people learned more about Shopify, more about, well, probably didn't learn that much about Skinny Dip because they already knew, but more about how they worked from an e-com perspective. So that was kind of cool. So were you selling in the physical space or just online? Um, so what they did was uh, Shopify had their own little pop-up within it and you could buy Skinny Dip products. So you could test out Shopify Poz. Or you could have gone online prior and ordered your stuff and picked it up there. So it was supposed to be kind of like an immersive end-to-end Shopify plus Skinny Dip experience. Experiential retail. Experiential Love retail. it. retail. Yeah, exactly. Okay, this is not about Skinny Dip or me <laughs> or, or the event we had last week. It's all about you. So... Let's rewind a bit. Cornell University to graphic design to Ralph Lauren. So talk me through the early part of your career and how you've ended up in London. Yeah. So it's it's funny to hear that kind of as a progression because, you know, when you think about where you've come from, it just happens. So I grew up in Los Angeles, grew up playing soccer, as you say it here, football year round. I'm from Australia, so I call it soccer. Okay, so nice. I'm with you. <laughs> So you have a a whole wall of football boots, soccer boots over there, soccer cleats. And uh, so that warmed my heart a little bit. (laughs) I played competitive soccer and lived by the beach uh, my entire childhood. So when it came to going to university, I really wanted something different. And I love history and heritage. Da, 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 foreshadowing for Ralph Lauren experience. <laughs> and um, so I wanted to go to those hallowed halls of the Ivy League and uh, went to Cornell University. And it's an amazing place. And we were talking about a lot famous alumni earlier, such as Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Um, John Cleese, <laughs> Christopher Reeves. I can't remember who else there was. Yeah, there was a few others. Oh, yeah, Bill yeah. Nye the Science yes, Guy yes, is a yes, great one. Yes. Um, and John Cleese was a visiting professor. So it's, it's an amazing institution and I loved every minute and I stayed in New York after that I I thought about coming back to LA but couldn't face the traffic and the environment although I love the weather so lived in New York for another five years in Manhattan working for Ralph Lauren learning from the best 
in the business on advertising and branding. Um, and yeah, I just, you mentioned graphic design as well. I've always been artistic and had some internships working at ad agencies. So by the time I got to Ralph Lauren, I was mixing my creative background with this newfound knowledge of brand and marketing. And I feel like I got an MBA in marketing at Ralph Lauren. Um, and a lot of people ask me what I studied. So I studied English literature and double majored in Spanish language. Um, so I figured whatever I do in life, I'll need to know how to read and write. Um, and That's really interesting. Do you yeah. think, because you're not the first person I've met who's um, um, entered into a, a, a brand creative uh, slash marketing role who, who, who's done languages and I feel there is a, a grasp of language is really important in those instances yeah, because that's essentially what you're doing you're trying communication language yeah yeah storytelling yeah, so I did yeah. a lot of creative writing and that storytelling helps I started out along with the graphic design was doing copywriting in my early days so I think all of that really helps and my thesis was on Shakespeare which is about analysis of texts and reading between the lines which while I didn't study a lot of mathematics or anal or uh, economics, that analytical thinking has really helped me in diving into data analytics. And, um, you know, I'm not afraid of a spreadsheet or numbers, but I also know how to tell a story with data, which is something that I think that that education gave me. That's a unique skill set. Yeah. So what was the vehicle to get you over this side of the world was it R ralph yeah, yeah it was ralph they they moved me and originally i'd always put on my end of year reviews uh they had a tick box would you like to relocate and i always said yes because i had the f fortune of um traveling uh and studying abroad when i was younger so i was quite familiar with europe and i thought yeah, London would be a great place to go. Um, so in the beginning, people would tell me, oh, no, you know, you're too young. You have to be an expert for the company to send you to Europe. Lo and behold, a couple years later, I was an expert. And that tick box um, made me the first person that the big boss thought of to send to Geneva, the European headquarters, to start up this new digital marketing team. So I got my plane ticket and I went to Geneva with the view of okay it's a nice sleepy town and I'll have a European wide remit so I traveled every week to Paris and Milan and Madrid it was a very hard lifestyle <laughs> let me tell you um sounds very glamorous it's never is, and it, is, was. It, is, is it was it that glamorous because I always find work travel is like from the outside can seem glamorous and sometimes it's not so glamorous because you're doing a lot of early flights and you know commuting between it was airports. so worth it oh, and and good. ralph lauren offices are incredible so it doesn't even matter where you stayed but to right. go to the office was like being in a mansion so it was just incredible and i felt so part of the family and that feeling that you get after being with a company and having their trust and being promoted and having this kind of remit that keeps growing i was there for nearly a decade in the end um and it was something very special so um at what point did the kind of the the engagement with Ralph Lauren end and then you found yourself in <laughs> London. Um, so my, my relationship with Ralph stopped when I got engaged to an Englishman. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. 
So I found a different man to sponsor me in this okay, country. Right. Okay. Very good. Okay. So it was it was a, a more personal thing that kind of brought you here to London a bit yeah, more permanently. So so actually, as it turned out, Ralph wanted me to move back to Geneva. I had family living in London. I was starting a relationship with someone here, and so I didn't want to go. So I had to get married very quickly for mm-hmm. my visa. Okay. Um, for anybody wondering, it worked out really well. <laughs> Five years later, so this we're very happily married. Okay, yeah, 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 yeah. I, I hope uh, Border Patrol isn't listening, <laughs> but it, it truly is a wonderful. Actually, this is a sting operation. <laughs> they can come in now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I did pass my life in the UK test, and oh, I'm good. applying for citizenship in a couple months. So let's not joke too much. Very good, very good. Is um, there some weird things that you need to do for that? Like name all of the monarchs, or so? is yeah, is that a thing? It's really funny. You wow. should look it up. It's yeah. it's an amazingly funny test, and most people, most British people, won't know the random questions. And I think it'll put me in really good stead to be a good um, uh, pub quiz. Oh, contestant. interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Very interesting. <laughs> okay, so you personally, you, you, you became connected to this yeah, land. Yeah, so I was able to stay in yeah. the UK. And, and after being with a company for so long, you take stock and reflect on your experiences. And my experience with Ralph Lauren was wonderful because I knew that company so well and it, it was a you know, six billion dollar company at that point, and it's just grown since only grown since then. Um, so I know how to work in a matrixed organization. I know how uh, the processes work, and and everything that you learn from a big organization. And I also had the good fortune of getting to work with all of our wholesale partners from big department stores to smaller mom and pop shops, boutiques who were trying to go online. And I was advising them on e-commerce and digital marketing um, with the end goal of increasing Ralph Lauren's share of voice, of course. Um, But so even though I had had that experience, um, I was still only at one company for nearly 10 years. So I thought, how can I get as much experience as quickly as possible? I wanted to see different operating models, different cultures, different product categories. So I got into consulting. And so, yeah, that's an interesting point because you found yourself at Practicology, which is a bit of a unique consulting model because it's like it's a consulting house of consultants that drop in and out of retail brands, kind of like turnkey retail services at a relatively high level, yeah. right? So yeah, talk me through some of the experiences there. Did you work, I think it was Selfridges and, and Liberty whilst you were there? So it was Selfridges, Liberty was after Liberty I left. Was after, but right, right. Yeah, so Practicology is great. Um, they've since been bought by an American company um, called Pattern. Um, so so that I think they're they've evolved a bit. But the main premise of Practicology was bringing retailers in to in-house as consultants so that we could say to our clients, we've been in your shoes, we understand your challenges, and this is how we've solved them in the past. Mm-hmm. Um, so I thought that was great. I'd always been interested in consulting. Um, and I had friends who had been at like 
Bain and McKinsey. And I thought that was so cool, but I never wanted to answer that question in the interviews of how many ping pong balls fit in a 747. <laughs> Is that what they ask when you go that's, for an interview at McKinsey? That's one wow. of the questions that I remember my friends telling me from college wow. when they were interviewing Blimey. with consulting firms. So I didn't think that one of the big consulting firms was going to find my background in retail marketing interesting. So I felt really fortunate that I connected with Practicology and with the CEO at the time, Martin Newman, who is a retail legend, and just got on board there. And it was fortuitous timing because as I was negotiating my exit from Ralph Lauren, I met Martin and he proposed that I go into Practicology, I'm sorry, to Selfridges um, to be their interim head of digital marketing. So Practicology did a, a few different kinds of consulting. One was interim, which is what I did at Selfridges. So I basically went in on my own um, to lead their team and be part of the Selfridges company um, very independent of practicology. And that was a great experience. I led a team of 12 highly performing, really motivated digital marketers integrated with their non-digital team, um, working with the stores and the buying directors and really breaking down silos within that business. Um, I, that's how I like to work. I like everybody to have an understanding of digital, not talk in, in, language that's only understandable that only e-com and digital professionals yeah, understand. Yeah, totally. And I, I imagine particularly at, at bigger organizations, I mean, we've got a challenge with it here in an agency where you've got developer kind of teams and then non-developer teams. So communication's key, right? Yeah. I mean, we're all have got a single vision and North Star that we're leading to. Yeah. So we kind of need to find that common ground. So post practicology then you you, you kind of went out and I, I you kind of dipping your toe into the water of like consulting but yeah, now you're yeah. kind of yeah. fully consultant so kind of talk me through that transition and I suppose what what you're up to yeah right now. so the the second part of what practicology did was consult typical consulting so like a project somebody has a problem they need to solve it um, and I did a lot of projects around e-commerce optimization digital marketing audits and strategies so I added that to my bow as well and so then when I got an, a call from Liberty who wanted to start up digital marketing um, they had had it kind of running low levels, but really wanted to ramp up, wanted to start a team. And um, so they saw what I had done at Selfridges, leading a highly functioning team. It was already set up and and performing really well. And I kind of helped take it to the next level. And so Liberty asked me to build that kind of team from the ground up. Right. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. What did you find easier? Or they posed, because I always find when you inherit a team that poses a whole bunch of challenges yeah. potentially starting a team from scratch is a whole bunch of other challenges yeah. did you find one was easier or more challenging no you know i there's they were so different i loved them both you're right there is a challenge stepping into somebody else's shoes like i did at selfridges there's a really talented head of digital marketing that i was covering for everybody loved her so i went in and i was a bit like 
oh, how, how do I fill her shoes? Everybody speaks so highly of her. Um, and actually today we're neighbors. <laughs> really? Yeah, yeah. So, uh, well, I'm being not like, no, we just, uh, bumped into each other in the neighborhood. And, oh, right. And said, you don't oh, like, literally live next door. Like on the same street. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. There you so go. We need to That's catch so up. funny. I'll tell her I, I plugged her on. This yeah, 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 exactly. Um, but yeah, so you have that bit of imposter syndrome when you're you're filling in for someone but I think we had very different styles and I brought something different to the table if I had just tried to be just like her and and deliver the same thing as she delivered then it it wouldn't have been I wouldn't have been true to myself and I also probably wouldn't have added the value that I did but I still keep in touch with a lot of the that team who are there and um, it's a tough retail environment, but I made some really strong bonds with people there. Yeah. Um, it's a great store. They run their business like a tight ship. Um, and it, it, was, it was such a fantastic learning experience. And on the other hand, Liberty was a completely different kind of store, different environment, different culture. Um, I found it a lot easier to integrate and a bit more fun. Yep. Um, and also the team were a bit more embracing of, of digital, I think, than non-digital teams were. And um, so I really enjoyed starting something from scratch and building it. And I learned a new set of skills doing that. So that's what I love about consulting and why I've kept doing it is that the pace of adapting and learning and taking on new skills is so fast and i yeah. just love that it gives me so much energy i suppose you have to right because like the particularly so at the moment you're doing you've got your own consulting opportunities right so the, the buck kind of stops with you right and i suppose that brings me to an interesting point and we, we were chatting about it before you're someone that I've not met before that adopts a kind of broader consulting methodology and kind of marries that with traditional e-com retail experience. How has that, do you think that put you in a unique position? Has it, has it posed some challenges because people on the client side don't get it? You know, how, how, how's it worked? Yeah, that's a great question. And I like to think so, that it kind of sets me apart because like I was mentioning, I was kind of interested in consulting early on, but I didn't think I'd be a good fit. And what really attracted me to <clears throat> like the Accentures and McKinsey's and Baines was that they have frameworks and methodologies. And it's like, I thought of it like, is this a formula to solve a problem that you would run into in your professional life? And, um, and that's something that I didn't necessarily get at the consultancy that I worked at. So I was always searching for that. Mm. Um, and yes, I now have two sides of my consulting practice. And I started my own company a year ago um, in order to practice that and bring services to clients in the retail space. So the first side is the kind of best practice um, experience team setup of digital marketing and e-commerce, which is what I've practiced throughout my career. It's e-commerce optimization and digital marketing um, for traffic growth and revenue growth and return on ad spend. So that's one side of it. But then I also wanted to balance out kind of a bit more of management consulting because I've spent a lot of my career working really closely with senior management, with CEOs. Um, and 
I learn, I enjoy that so much because I learn so much from them. Um, but I've also been told that they learn a lot from me from the digital side. And also uh, because I'm a good communicator, I'm able to be that person in between the people on the ground making e-com and digital marketing happen and the senior management. Um, and also, you know, we've been in a lot of different businesses you're just checking this out. I'm just checking sure this out. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's all good. Different kind of businesses. And, and when you're in business, you tend to put your head down and really just focus on doing and getting stuff done. It's an all too common problem, yeah, right? And yeah. I think that, that that's how, I mean, that's why people get external consultants in because, and, and we touched it when, when we met, the time it takes to figure out, well, People can go and figure out a framework to help their business get better, right? Or be more efficient or whatever strategic goal they have in mind. Taking the time to go and figure out what one's going to work best and then implementing it and then testing it and coming back with the results. I mean, that's why people get consultants, right? Um, so I think that's really interesting to have, a, you know, two kind of like this really focused, direct piece of uh, strategic consulting you can do on the digital side and then kind of balancing it with this kind of interesting, innovative, unique framework, you know, like that's, that's, a, that's a very unique position. Yeah, I think that's very yeah, cool. Yeah, and, and the beauty of the, the kind of approach that I take is that it's the best of both worlds. And actually something like 75% of management consulting projects don't work or, or strategy transformation projects don't work. And that's because when a, a big consultancy come in to a business and hold a lot of interviews, and then at the end of that, they have taken a lot of information, digested it, come to their own conclusions, and thud, given you a big report that then you as the client have to deal with um, and without the, uh, plans on how to make it happen or integrating that knowledge in, back into the business. And so a lot of those plans ultimately fail. And I think that's such a shame. And that's why a lot of people don't like being consultants because, oh, you give a plan and then it's up to the client to make it happen and if it doesn't succeed then you know it's not your yeah problem. and they get a but bad then, rap yeah, right it then, gets a bad yeah. rap and like then, we've paid thousands right, millions of dollars exactly. for this thing and and it's we've just got a big yeah. stack of and papers then equally you know, yeah. consultants are like oh i have no control um so actually i like to take a different approach because that that model doesn't work right and also it's very expensive so a as an independent consultant I provide a lot better value for money. Mm -hmm. um, and also I take a more collaborative approach. I approach it as, yes, I'm an industry veteran and I bring industry expertise to the table um, from logistics to e-commerce platform selection to digital marketing, uh, et cetera. Yeah. So that's one thing I bring to the table, but I say upfront, I don't necessarily have the solution, but I can run a collaborative experience with you and your teams to help facilitate us together coming up with the solution. And that's beneficial because it's tailored to your organization and it's already going to be embedded into the organization because the people who have to execute on it are going to have been part of 
creating that solution. So it's much more valuable and you see impact much quicker. Yeah, that's really interesting. So I want to switch gears slightly and uh, try something I've not done on this podcast before, cool. and that is take a couple of headlines and explore them. Love it. So uh, um, for the listener's benefit, we have discussed the headlines previously, but we've got some interesting insights, I think. So uh, these are specifically e-com related, although one of the points is is a little bit more worldly, shall we say, which <laughs> we'll get onto in a bit. But two sort of things that I've seen that have come out recently. Um, um, well, w- w- one story in particular that we want to kind of wanted to, to explore was the, the, the Casper's IPO or the <laughs> lackluster IPO. Um, and I think it's an interesting reflection of, of where the, you know, specifically the D to C e-com space is right now. So I suppose with that in mind, I would like to explore it. What do you think uh, or how reflective do you think the Casper IPO is of the state of digital retail broadly at this point? Yeah. So, I mean, just to should we help the listeners understand what happened? Absolutely. What, yes. So there was a, a lackluster IPO, which means they went onto the stock market and then their their stock value kind of dropped. Yeah, um, significantly after, so. After I mean, I don't launched. know what the exact percentage was, but it was it was quite bad. Yeah, yeah. it was something like from $14 down to 13 um, but it was not the way they wanted it yeah. to go. Yeah. Right. So, so basically... We've seen this trend happening, and I'm not a, an expert in the stock market, so neither of us are. So we'll put that disclaimer the out thing. there. Yeah, yeah. But um, you know, I've I've been following other unicorn and and tech businesses and seen what happens to them. Um, so like Uber, Lyft, what, didn't they came on for their IPOs and their initial public offerings and didn't really knock it out of the park. Um, some other businesses have done that. I think Twitter and, and Netflix. Yeah, there's maybe. been a lot recently. Yeah, but, but specifically about the, I wonder with the Casper IPOs we were talking about before. So I think there's a few things going on, right? So um, from a, a money perspective, I think there was a huge expectation put on brands like these. And it's something that we've seen over the last four or five years, like the kind of direct consumer bubble, right? Like Warby Parker casper away um i think that that direct consumer kind of model was right for the taking um and we were talking about it before and i think one of the reasons um was that the technical barriers to entry dropped significantly from what it was 20 years ago right so it's much easier to launch a business so to online. particularly online, online right building a website yeah. you know shopify no whatever whatever you're using it's so easy to to, to, to get online so the, the key thing was and that what I, th- I think is the smart thing was like how did they figure out mattresses of all things or, or sunglasses i think that to me is like the really smart bit it's like finding a space whatever they call it, white space in the market and and just going for it and i think those brands identified that space and they grew but maybe i mean what happened something yeah, caught so, up with so them the, you know yeah, like, so the barrier for entry was really low but then because it was really low for them and they figured out these unicorns figured out how to make a product that worked 
there were a lot of copycats. So now there are 135 versions of Casper out there. And you know what? Those keywords and the advertising space has become a lot more expensive. And that was one of the things that I'm sure investors were looking at when they were evaluating Casper was how much they were making in profit versus how much they were spending on advertising. And you and I know in early days of growing a business, of course, Casper spent a lot of money on advertising because nobody knew that brand name and nobody trusted buying a mattress online. So not only did they have to get brand awareness out there, they also had to change the hurdle of how can you buy a mattress online and educating the consumers? So they spent a lot of money on that. It's not an easy thing to do to raise awareness and change public opinion. Yeah, whilst um, at the same time attracting a bunch of competitors yeah, exactly. <laughs> eating into your market. Exactly. So yeah, and that's what these companies that we just mentioned have in common is that Yes, they're exciting from the tech perspective and they're bringing unique direct-to-consumer solutions. But from an investment point of view, they're not profitable. And it's really hard to see that, right? And I, and I think the, 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 the money side of things is kind of the other side of the equation. So interesting space, low barriers to entry, got in there and grew really quick. And in order to grow quick, ad spend was huge, right? Mm -hmm. At the same time, you've got loads of copycats coming in. So that's fine, because that's just the way the world works, right? But on the money side, it seems to be some of the challenges were the expectations of the investors, mm -hmm. because they were likening the sort of uh, direct consumer unicorns at that time as being similar to technology unicorns. Yeah. But I don't know if that it's yeah, right. It's, it's too it's different the, because like the Googles and Facebooks and Amazons have had 15, 20 years to grow and mature. And Amazon, let's not forget, took 14 years to break even and make a profit. So, you know, those businesses had a lot more time and space. And also what we're seeing is a change in investment appetite. The stock market has been going gangbusters for a long time and we're at a point where everybody's getting nervous about what's next and when is this crash gonna happen <laughs> basically yeah i mean it's we bubble territory growth, right yeah yeah can't yeah keep going yeah uh, maybe it can but like uh, there are a lot of pessimistic people and i think that's what we're seeing with these the reception of these ipos is that investors are actually looking for businesses that are profitable and they're not as sexy and interesting as as the tech ones you you touch on an interesting point and that is like what's next so you, i know you've done some work with a direct consumer athleisure brand mm. and they would would, would be I, I suppose um maybe not necessarily on the trajectory that something like a Casper was because the, the, the market is probably a little bit smaller. But what, what do you think a brand like that can do now? Are they just waiting and seeing how things play out? Or are they looking to diversify? Or I mean, because the ad spend, the social rent is not going anywhere. It's becoming more and more expensive. Mm -hmm. And I think what's interesting is consumers are becoming more and more are conscious mm -hmm. so they want products that are better made more sustainable therefore my <laughs> product prices are going up eating into or the cost of my product is going up so it's eating into my margin so what what 
yeah, what does a brand like that do now? And I suppose another question would be, would you start a brand right now if you had the choice? <laughs> I'm going to skip that one. <laughs> no comment. Um, no, I think it's a tough environment for brands, especially brands who need to grow and gain brand awareness quite quickly. Um, it's almost dare I say, better to be a niche brand and have a following because A, you have less overhead and, and B, you actually have a bit more flexibility to connect with the consumer. And I think going back to the marketing lessons I learned before Facebook and Instagram were huge. Um, and and they're not all bad, right? It, it's a fantastic platform, and I spend some time at Facebook and Instagram on the inside, um, and I still think it's they're great platforms to advertise on. But you know, there's there's an evolution of as you mentioned how consumers are um, embracing or not embracing the this ad environment and also governments are cracking down on it so for example the u.s federal trade commission is looking into brands into how brands use influencers in advertising and through social media to make it really clear when something is an ad um, so that the end consumer knows that um, so these are additional hurdles but i think they're the right kind of changes in the ad industry and it comes back to those you know lessons we've learned before the yeah. rise of these platforms of you know what's really important is connecting with your audience really knowing your customer and connecting to them through authenticity personality and creativity so getting back to basics right like yeah, yeah i think that and that is a, a key one -to -one thing conversation yeah yeah so that's really interesting so i suppose to wrap it up casper's <laughs> ipo interesting headline makes you think well it makes i suppose the market think will that happen again and it feels like there's going to be a cooling off in that like those sorts of businesses over maybe the next three to five years and that if I'm a direct consumer brand now, being niche is probably a good thing. Getting back to basics is probably a good thing. And maybe, I suppose, thinking a little bit more creatively about how I'm going to build brand awareness and connection. And then, I don't know, maybe more traditional forms of getting out to people is going to see a bit of an uptick in the yeah, next little while. Yeah, it's all a balance. And, and I'm not saying, you know, I think a, a balance of, that creativity and one-to-one -one and, and having telling stories that really matter coupled with using Facebook and Instagram and Google and YouTube uh, and affiliate networks TikTok. and TikTok <laughs> and Snapchat in a way that really kind of resonates with the customer. It's still, you can find value for money in those investments. And I think honestly, it's completely necessary to participate in that ecosystem it's just finding the balance of the the cost benefit and really how much to invest to get you to that tipping point um and you know the caspers and others of the world may have spent too much and yeah. not focused they flew on too close to the sun <laughs> yeah so so managing that profitability and working closely with your finance partners is so important yeah so that yeah you're not yeah. just spending willy-nilly yeah really and then the yeah i think the, 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 the investor expectations and stuff like that i think is going to change okay so i'm glad that we explored that i think that was interesting i want to bring it back to you as we kind of come to a close so 
I'm keen to ask you a, a couple of final questions. So what piece of advice would you give your 20-year-old self and what's next for you in 2020? <laughs> Great questions. So um, I think the advice I would give myself is not to worry. Everything kind of works out in the end. Um, and also when I was in my 20s, I was really rushing to get places. I was used to getting to a grade at the end of the semester. I was used to getting to the next year in school. I was used to graduating. And all these milestones that you have when you're younger, you suddenly don't have in the professional world. So I remember really fretting um, every two years about when I was going to get promoted and you know it's just a different timeline in the professional world and it's about what you can learn and who you can build relationships with and um i would have told myself to just relax and be a sponge <laughs> take it easy yeah, yeah that's cool and what's next for 2020 well i hope to be doing more consulting projects um both on the big strategy side um, as well as implementation or interim roles. So I am available if anybody <laughs> needs help. Um, Where can they find you then? That's a good <laughs> they point. They can find me on LinkedIn, yep. Lucy Hiram, H-I-R-O-M. And um, yeah, I, I kind of really focus on helping businesses understand their consumer and connect to their consumer and um, have been able to drive great results in terms of sales and and awareness driving so that's that's always fun and I get so much energy from being exposed to new businesses and and figuring out these problems and and making individual brands soar um so and i've got a personal project as well so hopefully that'll be plenty to keep me it sounds like you're busy for the yeah. Rest of the yeah, year. yeah yeah good all right well i'll tell you what uh, i'll make a deal with you we will check in in 2021 and see how you're going how about sounds that good thanks for joining me thank you so much Cheers. tim There you go. That's the episode. Uh, big shout out to Lucy for joining me. It was really good. As she mentions, if you want to find out more, or hit her up. She's on LinkedIn. Lucy, H-I-R-O-M. A couple of things before we wrap it up. Firstly, a big shout out to my sponsor, Klaviyo, the world's most recommended growth marketing platform on the market. If you want to learn more, go visit them at klaviyo.com slash your basket is empty. That's K-L-A-V-I-Y-O.com slash your basket is empty. And yeah, finally... Uh, if you like the podcast, show it a bit of love. Uh, go like it, subscribe it, review it, tell your friends, tell your family. Um, tell them it's the most interesting e-commerce podcast in the world. They're going to love it. I'll see you next time. No